0: And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, you know what we haven't done for a long time? Dance together. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can arrange that. But the other thing we haven't done for a long time is new ads. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. All right, we've got to start with the OG. We always start with the OG. Yeah. But he's good to start with. The
1: odds are we, know. Yep.
0: The wiener himself.
1: Yep. The original sponsor of the show, mm. the man who wanted to sponsor us from episode one, and we told him to fuck off, and then later we are like, hey, we'll take some of that money now, please. <laughs> Grumpiest, but most lovable prick you could ever meet in your life. Yeah, it's the yep. Irons of Wiener. Yep. Jason Furman, Ironswick mm-hmm. Dog Quip. If you're in Australia, that's where you're getting your stuff. Yeah. Crazy if you don't get- Pretty much. If you want dog stuff, get it from there. Have you seen that he hand makes a lot of his stuff as well? I've seen that. He tags me in his Instagram. I know. I see it. Me too. I
0: see it. He's using his sewing machine. Yep. Playing his songs. He's really embracing social media these days. Yep. He
1: used to have nothing at all. Yeah. A shit website. Yep. But no, now he's, he's all got a working he's website and social media. I like watching him use his sewing machine. Next thing I know, he'll be making linen on a loom. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> hey, you know who else sponsors the show? <laughs> who? Your wife. She does. Yep. CanineCeuticals. Yep. The best dog dog. Seuticals, the
0: best canine Seuticals. Premium grade, human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting it. It's great shit. There's been hot demand for her to get this all over the world. Mm -hmm. Like people are asking her from every country. She's looking into it at the moment. Okay. So that's going to happen.
1: All right. I caught up with George Kittredge and saw the actual Rowdy Hound box. I know. Yeah. So I had a good talk with George actually about his process in getting this thing to market. Yep. It's a motherfucker. So you should, if you want one, you should get one because George has put a lot of work into turning this dream into a reality. He did so much R&D, didn't he? Oh, huge. And yep. the, the product is amazing. Yep. So and he's got training
0: on. videos, everything showing. He trains and supports people how to get the dog
1: into it, yep. how to make it safe, yep. how to make the dog have a good experience from so it. So if you ride a motorbike and you have a dog, you need the Rowdy Hound dog box on the back of that motorbike. Absolutely. Next, Fabian Romo. Yes. He's got a shop, Mojo. And you've seen it. I've been in there. You've the tug. stuff. Yeah. I stole a dog. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd said as yeah. I was leaving, I'm taking this, yep. so I guess it doesn't count. But yeah, Mojo Dog Did Gear. Did you pay for it? I mean- With your time. Yeah. So it's not really a theft. Yeah. Okay. Uh, everything's fine. If you need dog gear in North America, that's where to get it. Mojo. Yeah. yeah. they got everything. What he has, to be honest, is the best dog trainers shop. Yep. It's without a doubt the best shop that I've walked into where you can buy actual dog trainer gear. Yep. Yeah. You know, high quality e-collars, mills, leashes, you know, all that's the impressive. things- Like proper tugs, like all the actual things that yep. real dog trainers use. Mm. Mojo, get it there. We have a new sponsor, also. We do, yeah. Daniel Daniel. Trapino. Trapino, yeah, that
0: sounds about
1: right. Daniel Trapino. It's Dog Club, South Australia.
0: Yeah. What does he do there? It's kind of like a little hangout hood that he's created there, a little cultural hub, cultural hub in South Australia. So I think that's what Daniel was trying to go for, was to try and embrace and build the culture in South Australia. Because I will be honest, it's been sadly lacking for many, many years. Mm. Like not much really canine came out of South Australia. So I think it doesn't mean there aren't good dog trainers down there. There's some very good dog trainers and personalities down in South Australia, but they've never really elevated it. And I think that's what Daniel wants to do. He really wants to push it out into the public For Get in there, South Australians. Get into the dog club. Dog club, club S.A. We must never forget Dan Croft. Dan Croft in Canada. What a good bloke he is. I love speaking to Dan as well. Yeah. Great facility. Great facility. Really emphasizing his puppy training programs. Mm -hmm. I just put an ad up today on Instagram showing a little Doberman doing his little course, running around, but that's what he really wants to emphasize on the critical period of development in young dogs and puppies. But it's not only that. I mean, it's all working breeds. As I've said before, as you've said before, very impressive to watch all of these dogs on BOSU balls balancing yeah. and all of the breeds that other people usually are shying away from. He's got like a whole room full of them there. Great shop, great setup, great social media. I really like the Dan Croft setup. Our last person. Who? Barbara Groot. Oh, lovely Barbara. Yeah, the sugar mama. From the heart dog training. Yeah. She didn't really want to emphasise. She just said, here, have some cash. Yeah, so
1: we just want to say thank you, Barbara. We We
0: do want to say thank you, Barbara. Thank you for supporting us. You're wonderful. We do love you.
1: On with the show. Indeed. Welcome back to the Canon Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm wonderful. Let's get on to business. We'll just get straight into it. Straight into We've it. We've got topics straight into it. This okay. is what people say we should do anyway. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going down the list that we asked for a couple of weeks ago now, mm-hmm. and we're just going to work through. We'll see how we go. Our first one is Kimberly Ward, who says, how do you cultivate a club environment that is accessible to beginners while still being fun and fulfilling for more experienced competitive handlers? This is a great question. I don't know. I'd love to hear the answer. <laughs> she then says, it's specifically drawing on your experience with developing Iron Fist PSA and now Pat with your decoy days, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I think that that is one of the trickiest things to do. I think that maintaining clubs is really hard. It and is very hard. One of the reasons I love PSA beyond the game itself is the hierarchy, the headquarters of it, the administration leaves the way that club business is done, mm-hmm. it, that's totally up to the club. They don't have any reach down. They don't care how that is. And so one of the things that you see in PSA is that the club systems, the way that people have their own clubs can be really different. Some clubs are very loose. Yep. And it's just a, you know, bunch of people who train together now and again. Others are very rigid and, you know, they are they have a president, a secretary, a treasurer, mm-hmm. and they're a proper registered club and you can do anything you want and any variance in between the PSA headquarters doesn't care. It's really up to you as an individual, you know, what risks you're willing to accept, what insurances you need to get, what paperwork you need in places to get the premises that you need. I know that here in Australia, like to use council grounds, then you're going to need to be a registered club. And so like to get permission to use those grounds. So there's things that go into determining that stuff Beyond just how you feel about the club training, because you might require it for other reasons. But I think the way that I've seen that we've structured the club and the way that the most success that I've seen in long-term enduring clubs is that the the thing with dog sport clubs in general, and not just like our club, but I think in any, is that you're going to get a mix of professionals working with very amateur people Mm. and what's essentially happening is that you're asking people who do this for a job or are very good at it at the minimum right to give up their time and do their job for other people for whom it's a hobby yep and so some clubs run for profit you know like and that's totally fine others just take enough dues to pay their bills and everything in between and I don't think there's a right or a wrong. I don't think there's a good or a bad. I think that it has to work for the club. I think as well, having committees and all that kind of stuff is sometimes really necessary. And I think sometimes that's why the club falls over. So I can speak for our own club. Not sometimes, majority of the time while clubs fall over. Yeah. So I can speak for our own club and this is how we do things, but it's not right or wrong. And mm. it's not necessarily the way anybody else should do it. We name the club Iron Fist PSA because that's how it's run. There's an Iron Fist. There is no committee. You don't get any say in what happens. It's my club. We had like me, you, and Neville Neville as like original members when we first decided to try and get PSA going Mm. in Australia. People come and go from the club. There's no hard feelings on that ever because that's just life, you know? Like I used to, when we first started the club, remember like we had sort of attendance requirements where it was like, you know, you had to come a certain number of times and- like, while I feel that that's good and I don't regret us having that, you just kind of realize that it's not so much about the specific numbers of people turning up a certain amount of time. It's when people don't turn up because they can't be bothered. That's when I'm not interested in training your dog. Like, if when people just turn up now and again because they feel like that's all they can be bothered doing, I can't be bothered working your dog. Like, that's not how it's going to go. There's ways to manage all that. But what I think is that people's lives get busy. So we have people that come to the club once a month or less, once every six weeks, once every couple of months. But it's not because they're not training their dog the rest of the time. It's because they live four hours away and their work schedule only permits for them to be there once when they are. And so that's fine. Turn up when you are. But it's not that the dog is sitting on the shelf and not doing training for that entire period. Like Mm. that's what I don't accept. That's not happening. One of the other things that I see When clubs fall apart, it almost always has to do with money. And that's why at our club, we have no money. (laughs) Now that presents challenges. That's not always a good thing, but I think for the most part it is because I don't charge any dues for people to turn up. What I just want is that people turn up and they work correctly. Now we're super lucky. We use this place. You guys don't charge us to use the place. So we're incredibly lucky in that regards. We don't have overheads. We Mm. only have trial overheads when it's time to do that. And we find we raise money for the trials when it's time to do that. Yep. I often see that It's the committees and the way they want to spend money and the power struggles within that that are the cause for many clubs to fall apart. Mm. And not just in bite sports but in all kinds of dog training clubs. The committee is very often sort of – pathetic, lonely people that are trying to exert some level of power over the six people that they can, right? Like you see that pretty often where people who have had no power in their life are suddenly in a position to wield some and they're terrible leaders and they really shouldn't ever be in a leadership position, but suddenly they are and they cause the entire club to implode. I've seen plenty of that happen. Mm. And then I think as well, you see people who think that club is going to be a way to for them to make money. And if you're overt about that, if that's what it is, then that's totally fine. But when people are like within a club that's not meant to be a, a for-profit experience, but they think they're going to hold a position in that club that gives them power, money, something like that, that's going to cause the club to fall over. That's kind of how we run the club. Like clubs expand and contract. And I think one of the main things is certainly we're at a point now where I have to start telling people no, and I'm not going to tell people no, they can't do the sport or they can't turn up to training now and again. Like that's not what we're going to say, but you know, you have to protect the people that are in the club. You Mm -hmm. have to not take on so many people that nobody's getting the fair treatment or that they're getting enough attention or time with their dog or anything like that, that they're not successful. Like I suppose what I'm trying to say is you can't dilute it too much. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of an ebb and flow between making progress and growing a, a club and pushing a sport like we're trying to do, but also making sure that your own mental health is kept in check. You have to enjoy going to club. Indeed. And you have to be giving the right opportunities to the right people. And being able to determine that is sometimes difficult. The way the club rule here is that if, as I'm loading my car to go out to club, I have even one negative thought about having to deal with you if you're a difficult person at the club, you're out. Mm. That's as simple as it gets because I have to love it because without me it doesn't continue, right? That's right. So if I resent you and make you make me not want to come to club, then you affect the entire group, and that's unfair. Mm. So we move people out. Now, that has almost never happened. That's so rare that that almost never happens, and usually the people who that does happen to self-select themselves out anyway because they realize, oh, this isn't going to go the way that I thought it was going to go here.
0: Yeah, well, they just feel the iron fist up their ass. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but we've never really had to put the hard word on anyone. Not because really. most people like think they're going to turn up and – like this is how it's going to go and we go no you have no say on how that's going to go you've earned no right to dictate anything here this is how we do things we like doing it this way you're a guest yep. sit down shut up and hang on yep and what i think is really important as well as i point out that like that's not in regards to like dog training techniques like i don't reach no, down that's a just lot about into, politics. yeah so mm. like i don't reach down a lot into people's training beyond what they ask for mm. like when people ask me to for help or like if people don't know what to do then i'm happy to give as much guidance as possible to yep. those people and i truly consider that if you're in the club then your dog is my dog like i am as invested in your dog as you are but truly only as invested as you are yep. right if you're not that invested neither am i and in fact the moment that i get somebody who is more invested like you get pushed out they get brought in because they're into doing it mm. and you know this is my day job this this is what I do for a living and I'm here doing it for free for a bunch of people. So it has to be enjoyable to me or why would I do that? Right? Like, and it has to be that like, we're all working together. If it's all give and no take, then like I'm out. Right. That sounds like say that we rule with an iron fist and all that. Like, it sounds like it's like a, an evil dictatorship, but I truly believe and trust me, I've like seen them work the only form of government that actually works is the benevolent dictator. Yep. <laughs> I, I think that democracy falls apart eventually and the benevolent dictator, unfortunately, usually gives way to the non-benevolent dictator. But when it works, the benevolent dictator is the only form of government that actually works.
0: Well, it happens on every level, doesn't it? And I agree with all of that. what you just said. I think that that sage advice that you gave out. I have had experience in it myself where I've been involved in incorporated committees and everything and clubs from Schutzen and so forth when I've sat on boards and I've sat on committees and so forth and you're right, there's a lot of people on those committees who got there for all the wrong reasons. Sometimes they're just filling a seat, sometimes they were popular, sometimes they were somebody's mate and they managed to get in. Just about in every case where that has been the case, it's been to no avail. It's always worked where it's cannibalised itself. There's been blow-ups, there's been people who don't understand what they're doing there's been non-business minded people that have been sitting on committees and don't understand what's required They don't understand dog behaviour and training and they're in a dog behaviour and training organisation. It's just fucking crazy. Mm. I cast my mind back to the Rottweiler Club when I was managing that and the training director there and I had five good years there and I probably would have remained longer had I not moved to New South Wales. I had a good team behind me. I primarily had very good support from the president of the club, Mick Svalchek, Simon Ward who was the vice president of the club, and a bunch of men and women on the committee who were actually really excited about the fact that I came on board, I was helping to resurrect it, and I was there for all the right reasons. So they didn't stonewall me in anything. In fact, that was part of the agreement when I came on. I said, same thing, I'm running this the way I want it run. If you don't want that, just tell me and no harm, no foul. I won't turn up. I just won't do the job. We had a lot of backwards and forwards about it until eventually they decided, yep, okay, we're going to come across your way, but we still have to confide within an ANKC rules. I said, that's fine. And I had people kicking up stink, people wanting to change things and people coming in and telling me that they didn't like the way I was doing things. They didn't like the fact that I was allowing if they had a second dog that wasn't a Rottweiler that they could come down and train. All of those sort of things pissed people off, but they never stopped me. I made sure I had it going and and ran it in place because I just thought I'm running this. This is mine. If I had people come up to me and say, I don't agree with your ethics, I'm not going to stay here, blah, 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 that was fine. I just got an NDTF student to fill their spot. Mm. So it wasn't like we missed out on anything. In saying that, there was uh, original people there that, you know, like Marty and Jan who were just fantastic people, Simon again, who was the vice president who helped me out, Simon Ward, you know, these people were just instrumental in in helping me. Like it was a team effort. It wasn't Glenn Cook's Roddy Club. It was the Rottweiler Obedience Club and it was held together by all of us as a team. Everybody knew what they did. All I did was directed them. I just mm. said, do this, do that, do this. The reason why it worked is because I told everybody we treat it like a business, not like a club mm. because... It had been the club mentality and the club way of doing things where people would stand around at the end of the night and exclude members and form these little huddles. I said, we're not doing that anymore. What we're going to do now is we're going to have cake and coffee after the club and our members who pay the bills and pay for – everything that we're doing here, we're going to socialise with them. We're mm. going to hang out with them. We're going to, you know, get some music in and chat and be friendly and and blah, blah, blah. And when we're done, we turn the lights off and we all go home. Yeah. You know, we don't hang around. We don't talk shit. We don't backstab anyone. Yeah. And we don't tear everyone down. It worked. It worked well because, as you said, I was being a benevolent dictator. I was telling everybody what to do. But I also had a team who knew what they needed to do. So they understood what it meant when I said we want to run it like a professional organisation. We introduced the social habituation program in there and the members responded in droves. Instead of a club that was falling apart that was actually in decline, we started to get it in decrease. And, again, I'd have people turn up and they'd give me their two cents about – their history in the club and what they didn't like that I was doing. And I said, great, cool, thanks, cool beans, and just kept doing what I was doing. Mm. So I just nodded my head and just said, cool, thanks, got it, and then just did what I wanted to do anyway. So it wasn't about creating conflict. It wasn't about trying to cannibalise it in the middle. It wasn't about trying to create another committee. I sat on the committee. I was a committee member for the Rottweiler Club. And all I had to do was basically turn up to the meetings and give them a report on how much money we were making for the club. Yeah. And they were ecstatic about that because we were increasing memberships, we were making money. And instead of being a cost to the club, we were a profit to the club. So nobody was going to step on me while we were making money out of it. And I appreciated that all of the people who did turn up and played their part in it, I can't thank them enough they made my job easy. I'd have Di who was on administration. She would get there half an hour before I did. She had all the tables set up. She'd get in there and get all the bookwork ready. She'd start processing members. So by the time I got there and did the brief with the team, got them set up, told them how we had A, B and C structure. So I'd go in there and say, okay, tonight we're working on A structure. And they go, cool. Next week I come in, B, next week C. Or we just mixed up. Nobody knew. We'd do a bunch of whole different things. But Literally all I had to do is just come in and direct my team and they were so professional by the end of it, they would do what they needed to do. Mm. Agility equipment was set up, things were set up, the rings were set up. To answer Kimberly's question for how did we work with professionals, so originally what I did do, this is one thing where I did get major, major kickback, is I kicked out the requirement to have to do trials. So I basically said it can fuck off. Because that's where all the heat was coming from. Mm, And the other area that I kicked out immediately was people coming down there and doing confirmation on other people's dogs who didn't ask for it. Right. So going down there and telling the dogs were shit because their paws were east-west and they had a dip in their back. So I basically said to all those people, if you say that to people, you're not welcome in my club. Mm -hmm. You can do it in the car park at the front if people ask you, but you cannot do it inside. It it is banned from this building. I had to make a compromise on the trials, which I said – fair enough, fine. What we will do is we'll set up a ring and anybody who volunteers who wants to learn about trialing can come over there and they can do a trialing class with you. If they don't want to do it, you can stand in the ring all night and twiddle your thumbs, but I'm not making people do it. It is by volunteer. So eventually people would come over and they were doing advanced class or even intermediate and they would say, I'm interested in representing the club, in being an ambassador for Rottweilers and, and trialling my dog. I'd say, cool, go over with Dawn in the corner or Jenny or whoever it was that was running the trialling night. Or we'd bring down a guest judge if we got a few people together and the guest judge would do a mock trial. People wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. They got volunteered to do it. We didn't make them do it. We yeah. didn't insist upon them that it was your duty to do it. When that was being done to people, when they were under heavy criteria and when they were being picked on and degraded and all the sorts of things that they were telling me about, not me, my observations, they were telling me what the things they hated about it. And that's why I said, I'll stop it. I'll shut it down altogether and just make this a non-professional professional professional club under the ANKC banner where we're basically doing what we want to do and having fun training our dogs. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. And then people decided we want to take it that step further where we go into trials. And I said, cool, if you're asking for it, I will ask Dawn Ayton to come down and set up the corner ring and she can run you through trial preparation, which they did. Then we started getting people going back to trials, but they did it
1: Because they wanted to. They wanted to do it. Intrinsic motivation.
0: Intrinsic motivation and they wanted to do it. It was their idea. They had ownership in it. I didn't push them in it. I just lovingly guided them over there when they were ready to do it. Mm. So it worked really well and the club was blossoming. It was going places. For me, I found that's the way I needed to do it. I needed to take the toxicity out of it and I needed to listen to people and hear what they wanted rather than just tell them what I wanted to do all the time. Mm. We played a nice collaboration in what we did. I was there. I was still dictating but in a very open-minded manner and introducing the professional concept where we treated it like a business, not like a fucking club because it's you're right, mate, it's that club mentality when you get these mixtures of people flowing in and then they start cannibalising it within and then they start forming hate pockets of each other and then hate pockets of people outside of it. The German Shepherd Club people wanted to come down and do some training with us. I said, yeah, we're all in this together. They let us use their grounds. Our lines of communication opened. Relationships opened up. Communication happened as a result of people starting to network and start to like working with each other. Mm. And I thought to myself, that's a wonderful thing to do. I admit sometimes I'm not the easiest guy to get along with. It's not through lack of trying. It's just that I have a short week with some people. I'm like you. If I don't enjoy myself around people, I'm literally cutting them out straight away. I just think there's no point in in making what's a short life any less enjoyable by having the wrong sort of people around me. Mm. Why do that? Why have sleepless nights? Why toss and turn in bed to be around people who are exclusive, toxic, narcissistic, crazy, fucked up? Why have that in your life? And I didn't want that in my club because I was and I wanted to be around these people We had good times. We celebrated. We had fun together. We socialised together. I started going back to the shows. And Mick at the time, Mick Svelczyk, lovely guy, great president, really enjoyed him. He was very progressive. He wanted things to happen. He made things happen. He was a good businessman himself. Once again... He ran the club like a business. Mm. He ran it the way that a business should be run, a successful business. He was a successful business guy. And he said, that's what I want from everybody. I want everybody to know what their job is, do their job, and be happy in their job. And if Mm. they're not, move on. Find somebody else who can come in and take over that position and help the club out. The size of the Rottweiler Club of Victoria was in itself much bigger than every other state combined Mm. because it had its shit together. It's like every other club. It ebbs and flows and goes in and out of vogue and, you know, there'll be people who move in and cause disruption and problems and so forth. If you've got a good working committee that works with each other, they bring it to a good boil. Mm -hmm. But if you've got a non-working committee and people who want to socialise and fuck around and – gossip and chin wag and start recruiting hate towards each other, then the club starts falling apart yeah. and it loses focus on what the origins of, of it are designed for. And that is the improvement of whatever the club is that you're doing. So if it's a sporting dog club, which I've been involved in well, I'm involved with PSA judging and so forth, I was involved in Schutzen for many years. I've had a dabble and a play with a lot of different clubs and a lot of different committees from time to time. And I just find that it only takes that topple over of a non-working couple of committee people that come in that cause the the cannibalistic side of it, where it starts to deteriorate from within.
1: Yeah, I think especially challenging things I see people doing. You know, I haven't really done, but is starting a club. So like our club kind of came together, kind of already existed, it was a bunch of people, and then we're like, hey, let's do let's do PSA, right? Mm. So it already was there and it had its own culture. What I see with people who are looking to start a club of any kind is that you don't have a culture yet and that is going to be determined by the people that are in it. And as, you know, like say three people get together and go, hey, let's train together and let's make it a bigger club. And then they bring in a friend and then that person brings in a friend. And now there's quite a lot of people who don't really know each other in this same space. Mm. And the only thing that you have in common is that you're into a particular type of dog training, whatever that is. And so it can be hard to first establish a culture. Like I think maintaining a culture is very easy because it kind of happens quite naturally. You sort of like when a group has cohesion, people tend to then just push out people that aren't going to fit within that. Or you get people that turn up and will go like, oh, this isn't what I'm after. This isn't the culture that I want to be a part of for whatever reason, you know and they will move on. So when you have a culture, I think that it's much easier than sort of that first 6, 12, 18 months that I see when people try and start clubs of developing one Mm. and and sort of being like, who are we? How do we train? What's important to us? You know, what are the things that when we, we at the end of the night of a training night or an event go like, okay, that was good. Like what are the things that we're referring to when we say that was good? Or if we say that was a bad night, like, you know, what does that look like? And exactly as you said, like I think people come into clubs with different intentions. And I think that it's got it like the club's intention has to be tightly defined so that you can then, you know, ascertain like what is our culture? What is it that we're moving towards? Cause if the club doesn't have a set of intentions, then it is just kind of flapping around in the breeze. So yeah. that was one of the things that we said here. And kind of the opposite, but for like in similar vein to your Rottweiler Club is like with the PSA Club, it, we're a trialing club. Mm. Like we are – if you are joining the club, it's because you intend to try and get titles on your dog. And as I've said to plenty of people who – I lose money through the club because when I have clients that, you know, I'm doing protection work or, you know, developing dogs and whatever, the moment they say to me, oh, I want to compete and I will try and talk them into doing PSA, the moment they do that, then like the cash check, it stops. Yep. They're no longer a client. I go, okay, They're well, come member. into the club and it's mm. like, fuck, okay. Like now I've got a bigger burden of responsibility to you yep. and I'm not going to pay you. I'm not expecting any payment from you because we're in the club together. Because that's how we run the club, and it's not. I'm not suggesting that's how anybody else do it. You like everybody does their own thing, but I think that for us, it's important that I'm only doing that for people who want to trial. Like when people are saying to me, like, "Oh, I'm like I, I want to join the club, but I'm not really into the idea of competing." That's fine. You can't join the club because the club is a club that is working towards people. Trialing. You can train with me or you can train with anybody else and you can do all that, but like you're on the clock, you're a client, right? Like you're not going to be in the club because the club is people that we're working towards a common goal. Mm. And I think that's the main thing is if you're looking to start a club or building a club, is identifying you and your three to five people or whoever it is that get together, whether you know each other really well or only a little bit, or there's strangers in the mix is having that first sit down and going, okay, what's important to us? Like, where are we headed here? What is our North star that we're heading towards? And from there we can develop a culture from that. Yep. But if you don't know where you're headed, then of course you're going to be have people pulling you in all different directions. And that's just normal. That's totally reasonable. That's I'd be surprised if that didn't happen, if you haven't had the sit down and discussed this is what we're trying to achieve by creating this group. Like, this is why we're even bothering creating a club or training together, is because we're working towards this endpoint. Okay, we've established that. You know, what's the first step in getting towards that? And we can start building towards that together. And through that developer culture and through that develop cohesion. And then, you know, like you've got a left and right of arc, you know, when somebody is within it and out of it. And I think the last thing I'd say on it is as well as like, sometimes people just aren't a good fit. And that doesn't mean you have to be like enemies with those people. Like that's one of the things that I see is weird. Like when people like with group cohesion, if you're not in the, if it doesn't click, if you're not part of it then it doesn't mean that you're on the outer either. It's just like, no, you're just not in that club. But you can pop by. You should trial and train and all that kind of stuff. It's not like – By not being in the club doesn't mean that you shouldn't continue to progress and it doesn't mean that we're not friends. It doesn't mean that we become enemies because we've said like it's not going to work out for you in the club. It's just because you're not on the same path that we need to be on. So we can be on parallel paths and and we can get on fine. That's totally or we can even be at crossing paths. It doesn't matter Mm. if we're not like relying on each other. It's when a group of people say to each other, okay, we're going to work together. We're going to create a a group that has cohesion. And then you try and go in different directions. That's a problem. But if you don't set up for that that failure and just go in different directions, then it's fine. Mm. That's my take on it. All good points. I
0: think you established everything well. The only thing that I would say is have an ethos. Yeah. Yeah. But you covered that
1: with everything you said. All right. Should we go down the list? We should. The next one's from Georgie Harrington, and she says to talk about sign tracking and raccoons. Let me give some context to that, and we can touch on this a little bit, but me and Georgie had a long conversation about this, and I kind of put her onto sign tracking a little bit. It was something that we observed in a couple of the dogs. There's a bloodline of dogs becoming fairly popular in Australia at the moment of Mallies, and they're very prone to it. And I kind of put her onto it, and in typical Georgie fashion, she's now like you know, world-renowned expert. <laughs> She's gone so far down the rabbit hole of obsessive researching and has solved a lot of her issues with it. But sign tracking is a form of like classical conditioning, of conditioning, whereby classical conditioning is that this leads to that. This signal leads to that signal. Whereas, sign Is this tracking, a real term? Like, Yeah, sign tracking, yeah. So you can look it up. It's mm. pretty interesting. It's especially prevalent in raccoons, right? So raccoons are the example. There's videos of them online you can check out where instead of saying that this leads to that, it's that this is that. For example it's very often the source of a lot of object guarding, right? Or not just object guarding, but guarding of any kind of inanimate things that doesn't really make any sense. Mm. So sign tracking in raccoons, the experiments that's on YouTube, you can watch these is that you get like a raccoon and teach it to put a poker chip into a money box. And yep. it does that for food. Very quick, easy to teach that. No problem. But before too long, when the raccoon picks up the poker chip, it knows that, This is the representation of food by picking this up and putting this into the money box. I will get food. Therefore this poker chip represents food. Sign tracking turns that poker chip into food. And so now the raccoon gets stuck and he gets, he can't bring himself because they are such resource guarding animals, He can't bring himself to put the poker chip into the money box Ah, because that would be giving up food. Mm. But he knows that it itself is worthless because it is not food, but it represents food. So he can't bring himself to give up on it. And he gets stuck in this loop of like, I know this isn't the thing. It represents the thing that makes it the thing. And when you see it in dogs, it usually turns out to be like obscure guarding behaviours, right? Dogs to guard food bowls and so forth. Yeah, the empty bowl, right? Stuff like that. But like some dogs will guard sort of odd inanimate objects and it's usually because they've created some – like this represents something of value or this has been an important step on the path to achieving something of value. Therefore, it takes that value. And we see this like we've seen it. A couple like the dogs will start to – present weird, obsessive, ownership-like behaviors of the bite equipment before it's even, like I'm talking the table, not the sleeve, but the table, because a bite has happened on the table. And so now the dog is like, this is my table. I own this in the same way it might represent that to a decoy. So that's sign tracking. Do you
0: think that's the case? Or do you think that generally on the table
1: is where you're trying to encourage aggression? Yes, I would agree with that. Except Mm. in the particular case we're talking about, it was one instance with a very young dog. Okay. The dog got on the table one time, did one little pillow bite, and then started showing weird – it wasn't even – like it was a very young dog and then started showing weird sort of biting at and attacking the table in a very possessive – If that's the case, then I agree. That is obscure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a super interesting phenomenon. Definitely I recommend everybody have a look at the videos of the raccoons to you. It's super prevalent in raccoons. Throw it up
0: on the discussion group. Yeah,
1: I could put it in there, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I've encouraged people – things like you see sometimes when dogs will bite you when you're teaching article type tracking. So if you do sort of Dickstall style method where the dog's only like looking for the article and then finds the track via leading to the article and some bloodlines of dogs, especially ones that are more prone to guarding type behaviors naturally, that so a lot of the sort of KMPV type malleys that are more prone to guarding because that's where a lot of the drive comes from, the possessiveness, they can start to guard the articles. Because you've been dropping food onto that article and the dog then goes, well, this represents food and it, the dog is probably food aggressive because a lot of those type of dogs are, but the owners don't even know because they don't fuck with their food. Like if you just, yeah. you know, like quite a lot of people with those kind of dogs yep. have quite food aggressive dogs, but it's irrelevant because they feed the dogs in a kennel. Like they just put the, like, like mm. everybody should, right. You just give the dog its food. It eats its food. You don't molest it or fuck with it. And then you take the bowl away afterwards. Quite a lot of people have, food aggression issues they're not aware of, which is great, right? Like they shouldn't make themselves aware of it. Until they exchange it for a washer. Yeah. Until you've like dropping food on that article, the washer. And then when you go to take it, the dog's like, Hey, that's my article. And you're like, it's worthless in and of itself. Mm. But sign tracking says this article is the representation of food. This article is my food. I know I can't eat it, but I need it here in order for the food to come to me. And there's tricks and how to avoid it. And Georgie's gone so far down the rabbit hole and doing all that, that it'd be worth having a conversation with her about it. If she's Mm. up for it, Georgie. Come on the show next time you're in town. Sounds good. So we've got a couple of questions that we've kind of already hit on. Oh, well, this is a funny one. The next one, Dawn Bennett says, resource guarding. I just recently joined a Facebook group and I can't believe how many people are suffering with their dogs and are lost. It's real sad. I would love to hear your discussion or deep dive into genetics, fear, operant, paranoia when dogs guard their shit. I wonder if you mean their actual shit. Yeah, I think she means their actual shit. And then she says dog to human and dog to dog. So I don't know that she means their actual shit. Have you seen dogs guard their actual shit? Yep. Yeah, it's an odd one, hey? Yeah, well, pretty much it's in the same paradigm of what you were just talking about Yeah, I would say that it would be a similar thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, to some dogs, it's a food resource and they will guard it, you know, and then they will consume it. Yeah. They'll become so overwhelmed with the fact that you're going to take it, they'll just
1: start eating it. Yeah. Resource guarding... I think is a mostly genetic trait. Mm. I think that for the most part, you can build it for sure. Yeah, I was going to say you can can teach it. You can create it for sure. But I think. But it doesn't come with the same intensity. Nah. And when it's been created, it's usually pretty easy to uncreate. Make it go extinct. Right. You just show, hey, this isn't going to go the way you think it's going to go. They're prepared to give it up. They go, oh, well, we're not doing
0: that anymore. So I'm happy to walk past it. Yeah. Whereas when it's ingrained from the start. The opposite is true. It's it's a son of a bitch to get rid of and it takes a hell of a lot of time. And the problem is is the slightest level of reinforcement and it resurfaces very quickly.
1: Yeah. Like true resource guarding, in my opinion, usually ends up being lifelong management. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I got a lot of feedback on the last episode that we did about like talking about lifelong management. Mm. That's an interesting topic in and of itself in that, you know, a lot of dog professionals – People who really truly understand dog behavior and people who can read a dog and know the role of genetics and training and all that kind of stuff, live with their dogs in such a different way than you might expect because they just know like, hey, that's not going anywhere. So why try, Mm, you know? Absolutely.
0: I'm glad you said that because there's certain observational things that people have come around here and seen my dogs do. And they've said- Why do you let the dog do that? And I said, because I'm either I know that there's going to be too much conflict in trying to remove it or I just don't give a fuck about it like you do. Like it doesn't bother me in the same way. I'm prepared to live around it. And I allow a lot of liberties with my dog. It doesn't really perturb me. I don't have young children in the house. I don't have a lot of elderly people visiting. And we don't have a lot of visitors. Well, we do. I mean, there's people in the house almost every day staff and so forth like that. But they're dog people. people. The people that generally come around here are dog-related people. And if that's not the case and we think that Narell and I feel that it's probably too temperamental, we'll go around to their house instead. Mm. You know, we just remove people from that sort of situation. So what we're prepared to live with is completely different than other people. and. That falls into the category because that has come up in a conversation before where I've said to people, do as I ask, not as I do. Mm. For your benefit, don't do what I'm doing. Don't look at it and think that's replicant, I can get away with it because I know you can't. Based on your level of experience, your understanding, and the problems that you're already having with your dog, there's no reason that you would want to replicate my lifestyle with yours because I can allow – a crazy shepherd to do that, and I've got the resources to manage it. It's more about managing it than fixing it because there's never really fixes in behaviours, it's management in behaviours. A lot of times people inaccurately use that word. They say, I'm going to fix it. But I don't think that sometimes you really do fix it. You manage it one way or another. Yeah. So it's horses for courses, really. It depends on what you're prepared to endure and what you think is okay and acceptable. And if you don't think it's okay and acceptable, then you need to do something about it. Yeah. Again, you and I, in last week's episode, we talked about whether it be a child or whether it be a dog or whether it be a species that you're working with and you're trying to modify behavior. What that entity needs to know, they must understand this, is what am I allowed to do and how must I behave around you? That is very, very important. We do this at work. There is a work culture where some officers say, turn up casual, doesn't matter, you know, like jeans and runners. And, you know, like if you work at the Google or the Apple store, it's like you look like a beatnik or a surfy. <laughs> Then That's the culture though. Like who cares? That's what they want. If you're in a lawyer's office, it's usually suit and tie Very expensive suits and ties. And um, if you go into court, it's gowns and wigs and all sorts of things because there's an etiquette and an expectation on how you must conduct yourself and what you must wear. And it's the same type of thing with entities and behavior. And that's what people don't do. They don't communicate effectively enough to the species or the entity that they're entertaining or working or living with or cohabiting with on how
1: you should behave around me and how I should behave around you. Yeah, for sure. And where I see that really represented is you see, like I said, it's usually good dog trainers live with their dogs in a way that like people would be shocked by because they kind of know that the battles that are worth fighting. Exactly. I'll just use myself as an example. My dogs have this weird sort of complex relationship between each other where Valerie is dominant over Remy even though he's like way more physically powerful than her. She runs this very fine line of maintaining that dominance over him because it's important to her for whatever reason it is. And so there's a lot of things that annoy me about that situation that I'm very careful not to fuck it up mm-hmm. because I know that that will cause me much bigger issues than, than what I'm thinking. So there'll be times where I'll be sitting on the couch and, And Remy will get up to walk past and Val will stand up and like staunch him and not allow him past. Right. And it seems like I've had people say like, why do you allow her to do that? Like she's bossing him around and I'm like, yeah, but that's important to her and she's going to recover that. Mm. And what I need to not happen is to, I need to never encourage him to push the boundaries with her because if they ever actually fight, he'll kill her. It like, and But so I I need to maintain their relationship in the way that it is in order that they live harmoniously together and I don't ever have to go into the crate and rotate sort of scenario. So what I don't do is encourage him to follow orders from me that would be in contradiction to what she wants. And so Remy's not allowed in the kitchen. He's a house dog. The to, idea, according, to or? Yeah, according to Val? Yeah, according to Val. I've never yeah, taught him that. Yeah. Like the idea of walking in the kitchen is <laughs> frankly outrageous to him. Like he yep. he would never entertain the idea of it. Yeah. He stands there. If I were to take credit for it, you'd think, oh, my God, how did you teach this? You're such an incredible dog trainer, right? Like because it's like there's a goddamn force field around the entryway to the kitchen to my house. Yep. That he just will not pass. I've had people say like, why do you allow her to enforce that? Like, and there's times when, you know, like I finish a thing of yogurt and I'm going to let the pair of them lick the insides of it and, you know, like be done with it. And she gets hers and then I have to take it to a separate part and be like, here you go, you can have your bit because I can't call him into the kitchen. Now, if I called him into the kitchen, would he come? I presume yes, but I'm not going to do that because then she's going to be like, Hey, you're fucking not allowed in this kitchen. And there's going to be a struggle. He's going to have to be faced with a choice of does he do what I tell him to do, Mm. which of course he's going to do because of a way more reinforced. Well, I presume he would do. Actually, I don't know because she doesn't reinforce him. She just punishes him. Right. So I don't know which one's going to win out, but I'm not going to find out. Mm. I'm not going to fuck with that because I'm not going to mess with their relationship. And I think a lot of the times when you see problems within the house, and especially the way that people live with their dogs, it's relationship. Almost always, especially multi-dog household, which is our next question here from Sharon, is that problems in a multi-dog household are almost always relationship problems. It's, as I said before,
0: entities who teach each other how to behave around them have established guidelines And why fuck with that? Because the minute you do, it starts creating multifacet, multifacet conflicts, which you don't know where it's going to blow out into other areas. And that's the problem because it's like a tightly packed box of springs. Once they're in place, the moment you open the box and the springs start flying out, it's a shit show to try and contain them once again. And just on top of what you were talking about, it makes me think about a behaviour that Randy does still to this day that he's nine years old and I just allow it to continue because I've tried to stop it in the past but it's like, you know, that show 50 First Dates mm. and there's a guy in there, they call him 10 Second Sam or something yeah. like that. Randy's like that with this particular behaviour and that is if he comes in at night when it's cold, like he likes staying outside but when it's cold he wants to come in and we want him in because it's he's old and it's it's too cold outside. He can't not come in like a fucking steam train and scramble around on the floor like a dirt buggy going around a corner. He just can't stop it. It doesn't matter if I get him to drop in front of the door. It doesn't matter if I get him to sit. It doesn't matter if I correct him. Nothing really stops him. And if anybody looked at it, they would say, you can't control your dog. And I would say, I've controlled him in lots of other areas that I needed to control him. But in that aspect- they're right. I can't stop him doing it because he just forgets about it. He gets so excited about it that he just tears through the door at a million miles an hour and he literally goes fucking bananas. So now all I do is close the door. I allow him to come to the door. I have the treat in my hand. I just lure him in nice and slowly because he's following the lure and I just lure it straight into his crate. Yeah. And I put it in there and he goes in nice and calm. Without that with with even with me trying to to shut him down, to try and correct him, to try and use negative reinforcement, whatever the training practices I need to use, he will literally forget himself the minute he gets to come inside. He'll do everything. He'll drop. He'll sit. He'll stand. He'll do everything he's supposed to do, door closed, door opened, until he gets to the threshold of the door and it's like blip, it goes straight out of his head. And then people say, oh, yeah, but you, you should do this, you should do that. I know it all, guys. I've been teaching it for years. But I just know he'll forget it and we're back in conflict again. Mm. So now I've resolved the issue. I just don't put him in a situation where it's a fucked up lifestyle for him for the rest of his life where him and I are in conflict and I have to make his life so heavy about coming into the door because we've done it where we've been very successful with it before and all of a sudden it's like I forgot it. I don't know how to do it. Yeah. And you can see the panic in his eyes. Like he actually gets quite panicked about it because now he's in conflict with me and I just think, oh, to hell with it. Yeah. Why not not just do the simple solution where I can just lure him in nicely and bribe him into the crate and he's happy to do it. Yeah. Every other way just turns into a living shit show.
1: Yeah. And that's what I mean is that when you go to experienced dog people's homes and they're in their multi-dog household, they'll be like, you know, this dog can be out, but only with this dog and this dog has to sleep in the the crate because he's a pain in the ass in the night and all these sorts of things. I say they're smart. They're people yeah, that no, I respect. That, but that's normal, right? Yeah. And then when you have like a those same people then, and, you know, I've been guilty of this, is then when you get a pet dog client, especially when you're sort of new to it all, right? With a pet dog client that's like, I want my dog to be like this. And you're like, cool, I understand operant conditioning. I know how to create behaviors and I know how to like make it behaviors aversive. Like, got it. I can mm. train your dog to do whatever you want. And you can for a period. Right. Like, yeah, but then it just, it's like 10 seconds, Sam. It just yeah, falls it's, well, away. It's not going to make like without constantly maintaining yeah. it. Like, of course, like even as you're saying, like even with Randy, like if you were on it every day, you could do it, but then you would have to be on that every time because he, he's going to require that input, that supervision, all that stuff. So you found the technique that works for you and causes the least amount of conflict between the two of you.
0: When I was on it every day, when I was really militant about it, and had very high expectations around it, he would do it, but he was so fucking miserable. Yeah,
1: exactly. You right. know,
0: and that that was kind of heartbreaking for me to see it because I thought it's just not that important. Yeah. It's just such a short duration and a short path to go. It's just not that important. But then other people would say, well, what about the leakage of other behaviors that stems from that? Well, it doesn't. That's the thing, is when I go into other areas, if we're out in the backyard doing something and he wants to go into the training shed. He doesn't behave that same way. He doesn't go crazy like that because I will insist on going into the training shed because sometimes when I take him in, I've got students and so forth, then my expectations are, are different with him. And he knows it's all different because he behaves differently in it. But when he's going into that crate, when he's going into his bed, like I said, it's probably three meters of distance. Why go through all that hell and make him so miserable and then, you know, like I get so adrenalized over it because I get upset about it. Yeah, it, yeah. it annoys me and it hurts him because I, it not hurt physically, hurts him, but I just see how mentally frustrating it is for him because he can't, he almost can't help himself. And now that he's getting older, I just don't want to put him in that sort of situation. So I just think, have fun, you old fucker. you yeah. know. And we do. We gently bribe into the crate. He goes straight in there and he settles for the rest of the night. Yeah. You know, there's no play up. He doesn't scream. He doesn't bark. He doesn't do anything. He wants to be in there. It's just that explosion of trying to get in there. And if I don't bribe him, he'll go straight back into that scrambling behavior, straight into it. Yeah. And then people will say, oh, but you've rewarded it now motherfucker, let me tell you, I haven't rewarded it now. It's always been there. Yeah, yeah. I'm rewarding it while I'm bribing it now. I admit to that. I openly admit I am bribing him into the crate to stop him scrambling so I don't have to get upset. I don't have to spend the next hour with adrenaline surging through my body because I'm furious and he doesn't have to sit in the crate wondering what the fuck happened and the two of us being in total conflict over something that doesn't need to be there. So for you guys listening at home, If you're in that same sort of scenario, think through it a little bit. Make your life less complicated by doing – make better choices.
1: Well, that's what I mean is that you see a lot of people just sort of manage their dogs through difficult situations Yeah, where, like, of course, you could put all the training effort into it, but, like, at what cost, you know? And when you do the cost-benefit analysis on it, you got to go, like, okay, but, like, what do I get out of this? You know what I mean? Like, is this worth it when I can just manage a dog through this situation? Agree, And I think that the more like that tends to be really inexperienced dog people, like who, sorry, really inexperienced people with dogs tend to do that. Then there's this kind of dip where it's like kind of quite new to dogs where you're like, no, I I can change anything. I can do whatever. (laughs) And then you hit this kind of point of like, oh, well that's who this dog is. Mm. I'll tell you a dog that I've met many versions of. I'll bet you see it as well is like the angry old deceased relatives dog. Right. Oh yeah. So like I can name, a dozen dogs of people that are with really good dog trainers. And they'll tell you, like, you go, it's usually like an old Jack Russell or something like that. And you look at it and they're like, don't look at him. He'll fucking bite you. Right. Like (laughs) he's had multiple bites and he's like, you know, he's my uncle's, my dead uncle's dog. And he's just this angry old fuck. And I'm just, he's living out his days with me. I've met at least a dozen versions of that same dog. of More often than not, a Jack Russell that is just like a legit dangerous dog – if he's messed with, he accompanies that person throughout their life and they're a dog trainer. And, you know, they have him on the crate and rotate system with everybody else, but he's a dog that comes out just to sort of stand around and, and just be, that's how it's been his life. You're talking about Misha Belitsky's little dog. Oh, yeah, that's one of them. Yeah. That's one of them. Oh, B-Town. But like there's, yeah, yeah, there's, there's so many of those type of dogs yep. that are just a forever management case, yep. despite the fact that they're with a very skilled dog trainer. Who just is like you know what I'm just managing this dog <laughs> to the end of its days, and the behavior mm. modification required of this mm. is is just not worth the squeeze because I can just avoid its triggers. Yeah. And why bother trying to fix all these issues because there's going to be a lot of problems through that. But you're a dog person. You're not going to put the you you understand the triggers. You're not going to put that dog in a situation where it's going to be dangerous. But you always see people will say that like oh no 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 don't don't touch that one he's he's angry right and and other dog people just go yeah got it. Mm. Like, fair enough. I've met dozens of these before. The answer is not always
0: affirmative action and training. Yeah. It's not always the answer. Yeah. It's sometimes just avoiding the situation or – Thinking through the situation in another facet, like sometimes empathy is just a- Yeah,
1: exactly. A, yeah. I think that's the right word, right? When you look at like those angry old asshole dogs and you're just like, oh man, how'd you get to this point? Like, yep. I'm just going to give you the best version of life that I can do for you. And that maybe doesn't involve solving the problem because you've got three years left. Mm. Like, why are we going to spend 18 months of that three years to, on this like desensitized counter condition program when we can just avoid the triggers altogether? Yep. If that's possible. If it's possible. You're right. If it's possible. Yeah. So our next question is Sharon. It says training in a multi-dog household, but I feel like we just did that. Yep. Okay. Carol Morland says, is there room in the dog industry for young folks to become truth professionals or peers of those considered giants now? Does the lack of experience of young trainers or future trainers performing or witnessing more compulsive training methods, leave us at a disadvantage 20, 30, 40 years from now? Will we be better off when the last person to have an advanced understanding is no longer teaching them in your toolbox type of way? Not necessarily using methods most would consider harsh or inappropriate, but the pieces or purposes of them. So I think that's like two part question, right? First, is there room in the dog industry, for young folks to become true professionals or peers of those considered giants now.
0: There must be.
1: I think absolutely. Absolutely. Without
0: the generations of younger people coming through in anything, businesses, families, farms, whatever it is, you know, without the younger people. And we are starting to see a real shift in that. For me, growing up, a lot of people that I knew were taking on their father's workplace or their grand- you know their grandfather passed it to their father and then they passed it to them. whereas now you're starting to see generations dropping out of things like they're not interested in doing it they want to find themselves, which is fine. they can do that, but they often come back to their parents and want to live in their basement until they're you know fifty years old, which is not ideal for their parents either. However, getting back to the seriousness of the question, yeah, we absolutely need our youth. We need to support them. We need growth in what we're doing. This is a an evolving story that needs to continue. It needs to be told. So leading into part two of the question If they started from scratch without the foundations that are in now, I don't think that's a great idea. Mm. I I believe that people need to understand what happened in the past. I guess what I'm trying to say is there are times where I consider the Empire Strikes Back when Luke and Yoda are training Mm. and the teachings of Yoda, which is very wise, he says to Luke, you often think about what's happening in the future and what's happening in the past, not what's happening now. Like he tries to encourage Luke, we really need to think about being present, being present in a moment. However, that's fine and I do believe being present in a moment but I also believe that the lessons of history also teach us how to be present in moments as well. Mm. And they also give us a model of something that we can aspire to for futures as well. The fear that I have is if – let's say for example everything just neutralized right now like for for some reason some bizarre anomaly happened where everybody's mind was wiped and we had to start all over again i don't think if that happened that we would automatically go to this euphoric utopian mindset where it'd all be just kind and loving with each other, I think you'd start to see the rise of Vikings and empires oh, happen again. That's the total opposite. Yeah, exactly right. Like it just wouldn't be where people are going, oh, yeah, peace, love, and mum bean, baby, because I'm frightened of being cancelled. There would be all out male dominated war. I know people are going to be kicking their dashboard over that one, but that's how civilizations have notoriously been created. Yeah. So I think history has given us an idea of what it is we're building towards. And I feel for many of us in the balance communities, a lot of us aren't going to like that because we're we're already afraid of what's coming and we're Mm. already afraid of this hypocrisy that's heading our way and it's going to do the absolute opposite in trying to help and resolve and manage behaviours and save lives and everything according to us, our Mm. opinions or the experiences that we have, what we can physically see with our own eyes. As we revealed last week, it does frighten me. I think about that regularly, but I would still like young people, yes, to be involved, yes, to mentor, yes, to understand, and also understand what it is we came from and what it is we're building
1: towards. Yeah. I think the first part of the question, is there room in the dog industry for young folks to become true professionals or peers of those considered giants right now? Like absolutely, and it's an obligation that that happen. I think that's super important that that happened. Mm. But I think one thing, and I don't want to get into like the generation wars, but I think one thing that is quite interesting to me is how many people want to be given opportunities, but don't take opportunities. Like they don't do the work to get them themselves. There's a lot of people who will complain about other people having a voice or a platform or anything like that without acknowledging that They too can do that. It's about putting in the work. Can I give you an example? Yeah. When I was a kid, I used to
0: get dragged along to church a lot by my grandmother. And I remember at the time there was a guy called Ashley who was a fair bit older than I was. And he used to sing in the choir. And I used to get really jealous because I wanted to sing, but I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't stand up and I wouldn't open my mouth and I wouldn't get up there and I wouldn't do it. And I used to sit there and tear strips off Ashley all the time to my grandmother and say, why does he get all the attention? Why is he allowed to do this? Why does everyone go to Ashley? And she said, because he does it. He mm. puts himself out there. Yeah. And she said, you can do it if you want to. She said, I would like you to. I'd like you to get up there and sing. And I thought, well, I don't really want to. Yeah. The fact remains is that why was I going through, I mean, look, I was only 10 or 11 or something like that, so I was only a kid. But the thing is, is I was more pissed off for the fact that Ashley was getting attention that I wanted than actually doing the work. He was doing all the work. Yeah. He got up there and did the work. The guy put in the hard yards. He got up, he practiced, he went to practice, he turned up, he sang, and everyone congratulated him for it. That's all I wanted. I wanted the applause. Without yeah. doing the work. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I find a lot more people are like that now. They want the applause. They just don't want to do the work.
1: Yeah. I don't know if there's more of them now, but we're oh, maybe no, there just is. aware Trust of me, them. Trust me, there is more. You reckon? Or are you oh, just yeah. aware of them? Well, there's a bigger population. There has to be. Yeah, okay. Well, there's probably not a bigger percentage of them though. Like it's the same, it's- like it's a, it's a personality type. Yeah. So like one of the things that's interesting to me, like I, you know, these decoy development days that we're doing, totally free, once yep. a month, All we ask is that people bring dogs to help us. That's our only ask is that even the people who are not interested in learning to decoy come and get their dogs work for free. And the dogs that are in development, it's only me and Cole that really work them. It's not like we're risking anybody's dogs getting injured. The truth is it costs me or Casey takes a turn at paying for it. Other people pay for it. We have to hire equipment. We have to hire toilets and stuff. It costs like $400 to put on the day. Cole gives up his place. Like there's a lot of costs that go into it. Yep. And we're doing that to try and train more people. One of the things that sort of drives me crazy is when we put up these posts saying like, Hey, we're doing this on this date and people go, Oh, I wish this would come to Melbourne. And it's like, Get in your fucking car and drive up here, you or can't get on to Melbourne. Exactly, so yeah. we can't we can't do it. So it's never going to Melbourne because it's illegal to do in Melbourne. Yeah. But also, like we are putting in all this effort at great cost to ourselves, right? Not to toot my own fucking horn, but the reality of what we're doing, it is costing me time and money to try and train people in what is my job. I'm not getting paid anything to do it. And I'm doing that to try and cr- I'm creating more competitors for myself within that space. Mm. And we're doing that like with intention. I'm aware that I'm doing that because I want more people good at it. And yep. I see, I want to create a culture around it, but then to see people complain that there isn't enough opportunities for them because we're not bringing it to them in a place where it can't be brought to them. It's one of those things that I think a lot of people, not a lot, but there are enough that it's observable. You know what they like? What? Ignition. Yeah, well, that's it, right? So You've this is what I mean. You've talked about this in the past and it's one of the things that infuriates. That's you. what I mean. So like mm. we have people come to club yep. that drive three hours, don't even own a dog that's suitable, to come and watch other people decoy. Yep. Because we've told them like, hey, we've got – currently we're teaching so many people to decoy that we've got more people than dogs, but if you want to come, come along. And there's people that drive three hours to watch, yep. just to like take notes and write it down. And, and so then when somebody then says – there's not enough opportunities. It's like, but what opportunities are you making? How are you putting yourself out there? And what, you know, like, I think sometimes people say, you know, we get dozens of emails. I get emails from people all the time. Like, can I come and just learn from you? And it's like, no, because like, what value do you give? Like, I've got tons of people that want to just learn from me, but like the people who are learning from me that are not being charged Are people who contribute will have snuck into my life, right? And that's the way you do it. That's what I did when I met you. You Mm. know, you just kind of like, oh, this person has value. I want to learn from them. What value can I give them? How do I become friends with this person? And then, like, how do I create a situation where I'm mentored by this person? Because I think when people approach someone and say, "Hey, I want you to be my mentor," that's never going to work. It's when you're working with someone. And you identify, hey, I have things to impart to this person and I care about them. Therefore, I will begin to show them things that are important to both of us, right? Because like I want them to be successful. That's how the mentorships happen.
0: Yeah. It's a
1: wonderful symbiosis. Yeah, it has to be that way. And I think one of the things that my friend Matt once told to me, and he, he heard it from someone else, is the worst thing that can happen is that your mentor remains your mentor, Right, Like your mentor should become your peer. Mm. That's the whole point. Like knowledge is like all of this is a relay race, right? Like you spend as long as you do developing the skill sets through trial and error. And that's one of the unique things that we have as humans is that we don't have to learn from our own errors. We can learn from the errors of others Mm. and we can say to it, you know, and of course, some people you have to push limits and you have to find boundaries and you have to test waters yourself. You have things have to go wrong for you in order for you to truly understand and believe people and all that kind of stuff. I get it but you don't have to start from scratch. You have people that can hand over the baton. And mm. I think what's critically important in our dog training space is that people who are as, you know, Carol refers to as the giants, like, I don't know who specifically she's talking to, but like, no matter who you mean, like within each niche, right? Like within dog training, there's people who are the king ding to, to different people, right? Like- Outside of the protection sport world, but most people don't know that name, right? Mm. Or they probably do now because there's a lot of Nipopo stuff getting around. But I'm sure there's people in agility who are incredible. I've never heard of, right? Because I'm just not in their lane. I don't see it. So there's this huge spectrum of people. It's not worth naming anybody, but they need to be bringing people in under them. Of course, their job is going to be getting paid by those people in order to sell their information. But they need to then be identifying some of those people and going like, okay, you're off the books like you're not paying anymore i am taking the role of mentor now whether that conversation ever happens and is formalized or whatever but it's like i see potential in you you are doing the work you're putting in the effort you have the ignition you have like whatever the genus acquire is that like can't be taught like they've got the essence of what needs to be in that person Mm -hmm. okay cool like i'm gonna put in the work in order to make you better than me and i think one of the most important things in that is and we do see this in the dog space, but we do see a little bit of the opposite, though, is that when you've sort of done, when you've conveyed as much as can be conveyed to that person, is telling them that and saying, like, it's time for you to go elsewhere. And not like we're not friends anymore, but I'm not your mentor anymore. I'm your peer. Mm. And now, as your peer, I'm telling you, you have a, a skill set to go elsewhere because your career is in its infancy. And I'm at the back end. I am set in my ways. It's not that I am no longer learning, but my system works very well for me. It's now time for you to go out and learn another system from somebody else and see what parts can be put into that. Like I say, I've been incredibly fortunate my whole life. I've had people do that for me. I've had tons of people. Now there's a huge element of luck in that. And every time I say that I've been incredibly lucky person and every time I've ever posted that people always say, Oh, you make your own opportunities. You make your own luck. Yes. But I was born in Australia, right? Like there's a fucking lot of luck that goes into all of this. right? I was born into a fantastic family in Australia. I have no say in any of that, right? Like that's pure luck. No, no amount of drive and determination. Yeah. You know, there's certain things that are, and I'm healthy. I'm physically and mentally capable for the most part, you know, like all of those things, uh, totally outside of my control. Mm. And it's when people go, oh, you make your own luck and you look, ah, why isn't this bum over here? Well, in the fucking role of the genetic dice roll, he rolled fucking snake eyes, mate. So (laughs) like he's never going to be as capable as somebody else. Like that's luck. And there's nothing you can do about that. But then beyond that, it's making and creating opportunities and taking opportunities when they come. Yeah. Entirely. And I think that's one of the things – and it's hard work as well. Like a a big part of being successful in any industry, no matter what it is, is hard work and putting in the fucking work. Like I've said it plenty of times in the past is that a lot of people in dog training are looking for the secret sauce – I can tell you what the secret sauce is. I know what the fucking secret sauce is. Hard work, is hard work. up. Yeah, <laughs> you've got to
0: suffer for your
1: art. That's all that it is. Yep. hard work is the secret sauce of everything. If you put in the work, you'll get better. That's I mean, it. You're
0: talking to two men who've got broken bodies. Yeah, you know, totally. like I don't think I've got a joint that's not inflamed. That's not. Two blown burses, I've got bad lower back, everything like that. You've got a broken back. We're two guys that have suffered for our art. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, that's the things you want to do. Hey, there is something I wanna I wanna tip into this conversation just off the back of that. Mm. It's a bit of a scorn. One of the things that really annoys me about some of the community sometimes is seminar vultures. And I just want to say this quickly, I want to get it out of the way because it annoys the shit out of me and it annoys the shit out of other people who try and organise things and throw a lot of time and effort into it only to have multiples of other people trying to contact the talent and then trying to rip them all off you and trying to do all this sort of stuff. And it's just so unprofessional. It really is. It puts the talent in a bad place. Some of you guys don't know, and it's not Australia, it's around the world. I've spoken to people in multiple different countries where they say, mate, I almost give up on it, I almost don't do it anymore because so many people will come in off the back of your hard work and they'll just try and scalp everything off the top of you. Mm. It reminds me of a time where Mike Suttle was coming out here once and he was coming in under somebody else's banner. And there was a time where Mike spoke to me and he said, listen, I am th- i was thinking about coming here again and coming to your place. Can we do it together? And I said, look, formally, you've been brought out by somebody else. I don't feel comfortable cutting them out. I'd rather talk to them first. And if they say no, I'm not going to do it. That's how it's going to be. We're just not going to go ahead with it. And Mike said, yep, I'm down with that. I think that's the right thing to do. I'm going to speak with them as well. I like where you're coming from. And he was a pure professional about it. And I wanted to be as well. So I did the same thing. I went straight to the person. I said, I've spoken to Mike. We were planning on having a seminar. If you're not cool with it, I'm not going to run it. It's just not going to happen. So unless I get your blessings, it ain't happening. And the person said, oh, look, got some feelings about that. And I said, well, tell me, talk to me about it. They told me and I said, yeah, look, fair enough. And I said, so is that a no? And they said, "No, no, no, I'm cool with it. And I said, hey, you're welcome to come. Bring a few guests of yours and stuff like that. I'd love to see you there. And they did. They turned up and it was fantastic. That's what I'd like to see from other people. Be professional about things. Talk to the seminar organizers or the hosts or whatever don't put people in terrible situations because we're all really trying to work hard to make this happen and make it go professionally. It's not just about the money making. Sometimes it's there's very little in it. Mm. By the time that everything happens and you evaluate your time, all the expense that goes into it, the marketing that has to happen, there is a lot of times where people have taken a hit and sometimes it's very successful and it goes very well. But nonetheless, it's the professionalism that I want to talk to the community about it. Across the board, it doesn't matter what country you're in. Have some respect. Behave like a professional. Don't behave like a pariah. Mm. It doesn't make you look good either. It makes you look like a pariah to all the people involved in it. It's just not good for our industry because it creates mistrust. People then divide once again. It is no good for anybody else. Communicate. Anyway, enough said. I've made my points. Do you
1: think Um, that's fair enough though? uh, Yeah, for the most part. I think that it gets complex because people who are travelling, especially overseas to do seminars, like you don't know the culture, you don't know how big an audience there could possibly be, you don't know that kind of stuff and you don't know like – where does somebody's sphere of influence land, right? To speak, say, in American terms, like for me, it, like I try not to, to kind to of flood the market. One thing that was really important to me was when COVID happened is, you know, I refunded everybody the flights, it, all the costs that they had paid to me for those things. Because I was like, I can't owe you anything because I don't know when this starts again, like this is my job and I'm not beholden to anyone mm. anywhere. So like you should refund everything. Because I have refunded you. I don't know whether these events will ever happen again. And when travel opens and whatever, like I have to prioritize different things. We will be under a different set of like circumstances than we are now. So we're canceling and we will look to rebook in the future. We're not postponing. That was very important to me. I think as well, like, it can be tricky for people to not really understand, like, at what point, like, if I do something in LA, for example, is doing something in Vegas too close. So, like, that's where it becomes tricky. And as well, like, exactly that, as long as everybody's talking is what avoids the problems because you got to be sort of transparent. Like, I don't want to fuck up one event because there's going to be another one Mm. and you're tapping from the same audience. but. You as the sort of international traveling person don't necessarily know where those divisions are. You don't know like, okay, well, that's far enough away and at a different enough time that it's not going to impact this one. Because I think like exactly as you're right, like I love teaching it. I truly, I love it. And I especially love teaching dog events and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's got to be a business, like, because this is my job. If I'm going to be away from my family and away from the dogs that I'm being paid to train here locally, I need to make enough money when I'm traveling in order for it to be sustainable. Like it's it's my job, Mm. but I can't gauge that internationally. Like, I don't know, like if I do one here, where am I affecting that person and the ability for that to be a successful event by doing a different one elsewhere? So I think that's, what's really important is like exactly as you said, open lines of communication in that space where I would... appreciate it if someone wanted to tack on to another event that i'm already doing that they need to first have spoken to the event host and cleared it with them or like at least included them in the conversation so that we can all make a decision on that that is beneficial for everybody rather than any dodgy underhanded shit like that's don't go yeah don't go to the talent set it up with them and then tell the host
0: that's what's happening yeah like those sort of things are really dodgy
1: yeah well i mean for me that's why it's so hard to organize events because there's a lot of moving parts but Mm. it's like you've got to say all right this is my plan and usually you know for me because like when i travel i want to do two things i want to maximize my time if i'm going to spend 20 something hours in the air each way Yep, it needs to be worth my trip there rather than go for three days and come back and spend as much time on a plane as I did there like that's you know that doesn't gel for me mm-hmm. so you've got to maximize things but same deal like you've got to be there and able to that liaison piece like people just have to talk to each other it's as simple as that
0: mate I've had a situation where I was invited to do a seminar this is pre-covid somebody else also invited me. The two of them didn't talk to each other. I didn't realize that they were in the same realm with each other. And suddenly they both started warring with each other. And in the end, all three of us agreed, let's not do it. Yeah. It was just too much trouble in the end. And I just thought, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't, I actually don't want to be in the middle of it. And I don't want to be involved in it. And I'm too busy for it. I can't be fucked with all the drama that's going on. Yeah. And it's simply because people didn't talk to each other. Once again, these people don't talk to each other now. And it's created a division in the industry where it, yeah, does, it doesn't didn't need, need it didn't need, to be it just Mm. doesn't need to be anyway I didn't want to end with a downer I was thinking about the other day there was a group of us online talking about it there's a bunch of other people that's happened to funnily enough they started the conversation and I just said look it's happened a few times here as well I remember speaking to Karen Brad when they brought Hans and Esther out here multiple times and I told them at the start I said I will never approach them. I will never go to them. This is your event. I'm just enjoying being in the audience and not having to organize it. I'm just enjoying that. And those kind of things I like. I like working with people. I enjoy the seminar scene. I want to see more of them. I like seeing talent come out. But also what people have got to remember when they're coming and visiting Australia is Australia is a fundamentally small country, much smaller than the United States. And when there's a flood of or a glut of seminars coming over here. There's only so much money, all of these trainers' pockets, before yeah. they can't do it anymore. And I mean, I've already had people come up to me this year saying, hey, we're literally bankrupt. Not definitely bankrupt, but literally, you yeah, know, there's yeah. just no My disposable
1: income for that yes, kind of stuff. Yeah, is there's good.
0: no disposable income. You know, like there was some people that wanted to come to Cameron Ford who can't do it now
1: because they've thrown all their money at Mike Ellis and they've just said, I just can't, I've just got no funds to do it. I mean, that's the reality, right? Like from a business standpoint, you've got a finite market of Mm. people. There's only a certain number of people that are interested. They have a certain availability and capacity to attend as well as money. And, And I think one thing that lots of people don't appreciate very well is that the cost of attending a seminar for most dog trainers is way more than the cost of the event. Cause they're going to lose the income that comes of it. And so they maybe have to travel the day before and the day after they are going to not make any money during that period because you know most dog trainers work weekends. Cause that's where accommodation. Yeah. Food. So there's all that entertainment. So to attend an event that, yeah, you know, so like when I went down to uh, Helmet Riser, for example, that's a fifteen hundred dollar trip for me. Yep, because I had to fly down. I like I had to pay for my ticket. I stayed with Alex, so like I didn't pay for accommodation. But just the flights and the ticket and mm. my expenses along the way is fifteen hundred bucks. Yeah, there's the expenses. There never sure. mind the opportunity loss, right? So like I wasn't doing other things that weekend. Now for sure, like I'm happy. I spent that money. It was very worth it to me. Like more than worth it. I got way. I got tons of value from it. But it's still a lot of money. Yep. Not everybody has that capacity to, Absolutely. to to do 100%. that anyway we gotta wrap it up yeah we it's do time to go train dogs it is all right that's it another episode canon paradigm mm. as always if you like what you hear join the mailing list get on the mailing list there will be links in the description yep it's there it's there all right sweet get on that rate us like us rate all that kind of stuff on whatever subscription service you download us from do that. a lot of
0: good ratings on spotify thank you do we yeah we do good for us
1: yeah thank you guys Appreciate you. Yeah, we do appreciate
0: you doing all that, all that five seconds worth of work. Yeah,
1: no, it's a lot of work. You it gotta is think it's about a pain what in the to ass. Say. It's I a agree. thing. Yes, it is. It's a thing. Especially like I've been places like services that I use and like, and then they'll say, "Hey, do you mind giving us a Google review?" And it's like, yeah. I will like. I'm happy to do that Later. now that I'm prompted. No, but like I want to be like genuine. Like I want to actually have a think about it and write something that is why I like that, rather than just go like it's good because it's fucking dog shit, right? Yep. Like that's a like it's better than nothing, but a real review of like this is what I like about it. That's a lot of time effort to do, and we have many of those, and I appreciate everyone. Well, I'm going to give a review for a restaurant that Narelle
0: and I have found, and I really like it. It's really? called Qua. In oh. Bella Vista Waters, I think. Fancy. Fancy. It's Q-O-U-I. Oh, God. That's so fancy. It means what in French. What? What? The guy is 29 years old. His name is Joshua Mason. Mm. He's 29 years old. And I'll tell you what, this kid can work. Yeah, right. Like for 29-year-old, how industrious he is and what a great chef he is and how delicious his food is. Mm-hmm. It is amazing. I love it. And I am happy to leave a review for him. If you're in the area and you want to have a good meal, go there because that man puts, and his staff put in absolute – 110% in what they're doing. All right. That's it for the choir
1: podcast. If you like what you hear, like, <laughs> rate, share, subscribe, do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. Jump yes. into our Patreon, not the Qua Patreon. Not the Qua Patreon. Uh, no, the no. Canine Paradigm. Links in the show notes, of course. Jump into the Patreon there. There's new stuff going in there all the time. Live streams. I did one of those yesterday. It was a really it? good one. It was what, wonderful. What did you cover? Oh, everything that people asked about. There Great. was a lot of different stuff. Yep. What I realized is because I'm, I'm fucking busy at the moment is that I can use that for content i'm going to start making reels out of that i might even post one tomorrow nice um because it's like i didn't realize that the streaming software that i use records it locally i found the file on my computer it's like i was like oh i have this i didn't know i had that yeah Um, nice so i can use that if you want to support the show you should buy some cool merch get into spring links in the show notes again Uh, i could buy a towel you buy a towel. You buy a towel. You
0: buy a towel, and you could bring it to a seminar. You could wrap yourself up with, if yeah. you're
1: cold. And I'll I'll say something of the towels.
0: Yep. Uh, the reason the towels are on my mind is because I found my one today. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got it. Well, I think we both get, bought ourselves a towel each, didn't a we? Yeah.
1: <laughs> they're not the highest quality towels. No, they're not. <laughs> I mean, they've got a cool logo on them. They yeah. look cool. Yeah. And if you're like drying a dog with it. Probably a great idea. Yeah. That's not the best towel. I'm totally honest with the towels.
0: I don't think you'd go to an online merch shop to buy an amazing <laughs> High quality.
1: Egyptian thread towel. <laughs> <laughs> so get a towel. If you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is jump into the Facebook discussion group. We're really trying to uh, keep things cool in there. That's why we booted a bunch of dickheads the other day. But if uh, you want to jump into there, that would be really good. And if you want to get in contact with us individually, do that. Or you can shoot us an email. We got info at thecanineparadigm.com. Goodbye. Goodbye.